2: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: The arena, waking and singing, and building the plane in flight. A prestigious director's journey. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Sean Chandler, and you're listening to Your Program is Your Ticket, a discussion of smaller theater works and the people and organizations that make it happen. In October 2018, director Adam Knight joined Riverside Theatre in Iowa City as producing artistic director after spending 17 years in New York City as a director and producer where he called Slant Theatre Project his artistic home for 14 of those years. Adam has produced 25 world premieres, worked with multiple prestigious artists, and directed numerous projects all over the country. One of those projects being the dazzling, award-winning, 2018 Stripped script production of Aaron Posner's Stupid Fucking Bird, which took home the New York Innovative Theater Awards trophy for Outstanding Revival of a Play and landed My Husband David an Outstanding Featured Actor nomination, his co-star Olivier Renaud, an Outstanding Actor in a Lead Role nomination, and a much, much deserved Outstanding Director nomination for Adam himself. Keep in mind that our interviews are recorded at different times to optimize schedules, just in case the audio sounds different. I am excited to have Adam as a guest, so let's bring him on. Hi, Adam, and welcome to your program, Is Your Ticket? Hi, thanks so much for having me. Oh, I'm so, so happy that you're, we finally made this work, and you're going to be on the Act Two Places series. You have such a wonderful, full, and storied uh, career with uh, lots and lots, wearing lots of different hats. And I think that you can really add so much to this conversation. So it's, it's, it's amazing. We finally made it work.
0: I know. And it's so great to see you again. We spoke about two and a half years ago and, um, and it's wonderful to be back and, and the world has changed. Our lives have changed and, and, um, and yet the show is still here and I'm so glad to be back on it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. It's, it's nuts. Who would have ever
0: thought? Yeah, you know, I would have never thought that this would happen. I know it's, 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 it's totally insane. And yet I'm, I've been so, so very inspired. I know we'll talk more about this by, by the theater that's happening, by the theater that my company is doing by the, by the, the things I'm hearing coming out and also by the changes that are, that are happening in our industry. So it's hopefully it's, hopefully there's a lot of good will come out of this. Indeed. Indeed.
1: Um what Adam is referring to as far as us seeing each other years ago, last time um, in uh, Adam directed a production of Aaron Posner's stupid fucking bird, which I believe is a sort of a modernization of the seagull. Am I right? Correct. Okay, cool. And um, it was done at the Plaxall gallery in Long Island city. And uh it, it it took home the New York Innovative Theater Awards trophy for outstanding revival of a play, and landed my husband David an outstanding feature actor nomination. His co-star Olivier Renault—I'm saying Olivier's name right? Correct? Yeah, Renault. Yeah, okay, right. cool, 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 cool. I always, I always forget um, an outstanding actor in a lead role nomination and a much, much deserved outstanding director nomination for Adam himself. I have to tell you, I. I kind of owe you a teeny tiny apology, even though you probably don't realize it because I remember when I went to do the interview with, with you and the team and uh, David said, yeah, we're going to do act two in this little kitchen over here. And I thought you're going to move. I mean, yeah. uh, Let me set the scene or put it in context. It was like this large giant gallery and sort of like in a very small chunk of it in the middle, there's this like, small kitchen it's a kitchen kitchenette
0: if you will yeah like
1: a utility kitchen and oh we're gonna put 50 people in there and do the entire act too and i thought oh i was so skeptical and then it it happened and i thought this is fucking brilliant (laughs) oh my so I apologize for I apologize for maybe you not knowing it, but me doubting it a little bit because I could
0: feel I could feel the doubt and it's okay. You know, I mean it was one of those great moments. Um Tana, um, who was uh who was um one of the actors in it and was one of the producers, um I, I was speaking with her about it and I was just like, I've got a crazy idea and she just had this fiery look in her eye and she was like, Go on. And I said what if we do it in the actual kitchen? And, uh, to her amazing, um, producerly credit, um, she said, yes. And it's one of those things where you get these crazy ideas and the thing that would have killed it instantly is any kind of hesitation or any kind of, yeah, but we got to sell tickets and all this stuff. And, and the fact that she believed in that choice, um, just led to so many other great decisions that that, that, that production had um, great choices that production had in it. I was very proud of it. And it was my last production in New York city before moving to Iowa to um, join Riverside theater here. So um, it was a wonderful way that, to kind of leave it all on the field in New York and do something very uh, crazy that, that I and the team were very proud of. Oh,
1: so outstanding. Um, David and I had dinner with Tana and Alison Threadgold and her husband I, well, I'm going to say probably about a year and a half ago uh, before the, the COVID shutdown. And um, I, I told them both, I said, I hope you both know what outstanding leaders you are because uh, you took risks. You stood by your director. You, you, I don't want to say ignored, but sort of like, well, yeah, I kind of ignored all of the skepticism and you made that decision and you went for it and it was, and it paid off huge dividends for you honestly there are people that i talk to that still talk about that production
0: wow that's, yeah. that's so that's so great and and it was a i just remember the sunlight coming through the garage doors and we were in yeah. long island city and it was just uh there were lots of elements that they made that great but allison and tana um are, are such great um producers and artists um it was wonderful to work with them Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh,
1: love those two ladies. And the whole entire cast was great. Made some really good friends out of that, as did David. And, well, David's one of those people, like, he instantly makes friends wherever he goes. Like, and within two days, he's leading the whole thing. So that's just how he rolls. But, you know, you've met him. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's, um, uh, let's have you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your career as a director, theater founder, an administrator. What what inspired you to, to become a director?
0: Oh, gosh. You know, I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, um, and there's this small professional theater there called the Warehouse Theater. Um, it's about the size, it was about the size then that Riverside Theater in Iowa City, where I work, um, is now. And um, I, I was doing, you know, church plays. I, I grew up Southern Baptist, so I was doing like, you know, play plays in church. And um I had a friend of mine named Allison Easterling, Angela Easterling, who, um, who convinced me to audition for a play. And, um, I did a production of Best Christmas Pageant Ever and then a production of Marvin's Room. And, um, and I fell in love with it. And I think I fell in love with doing really intimate theater. I mean, the warehouse theater at the time, I think, sat maybe a hundred. And, you know, you were acting with the audience five feet away from you. And, and it was, it was kind of an L-shaped house. And I loved that intimacy. I loved that, that there was no kind of walls between, between the artists and the, and the actors. I saw some of the best, best productions of my memory there. And, um, and that kind of serious minded theater stuck with me. I went to the University of Evansville in Indiana. Um, I went, uh, as a performer. Uh, but in the back of my head, I kind of knew I wanted to be a director. Um, I, I kind of realized pretty early on, even in high school that I had a good eye and I wasn't quite sure what that meant, but I knew that like, when I watched something, it could be like, oh, that didn't quite work. You know, I, I, I didn't exactly know what something wanted, but I knew what, what, that something wasn't right. And so, um, in, in, at Evansville, I, uh, I acted for about two years and then, um, quickly realized that the other actors were, um, were far better than I was. Um, and I, and I was in a class with some amazing performers. Um, you know, one of whom is Rutina Wesley, who's in uh, Queen Sugar and True Blood. Right. Um, another, another of whom is Bill Heck, who's, who's just made an amazing career for himself on stage and, and, and in TV and film. And, um, and so I realized, you know, this isn't, for me you know I, there's a lot of actors who were far better at this than i am but but what what can i bring to the conversation and and that's what got me back back onto that directing track the first thing i directed in college was um a production of awake and sing by clifford Odets. and um then I, I i went to new york and, and my kind of my, my strategy out of undergrad was I want to work at as many places as, as I can that great artists are at. So basically I wanted to meet my heroes. Um, I spent a summer at, at Williamstown. I spent two summers at the O'Neill um, back when Jim Houghton was running it, which was an amazing experience. You know, August Wilson was there, Lee Blessing, Adam Rapp, um, Brooke Berman. Um, it was just a, a – Dan O'Brien. It was just a phenomenal group of, of artists to, to be around and and – The great thing about the O'Neill is you're kind of stuck there. You're kind of stuck in Waterford, Connecticut. And there's this little bar there that we call Blue Jeans Pub after Eugene O'Neill that seats about 30. And so you'd hang out and have beers with August Wilson. And it was just a phenomenal way to grow up um, in the theater. Um, I moved to New York because I got an internship at at Signature Theater um, back when it was kind of a 12-person operation. I was an artistic intern there. And... Um, making about 50 bucks a week. And I moved there because we were doing a, a New York premiere of Sam Shepard's The Late Henry Moss, and I wanted to meet Sam Shepard. And I think that was like literally my decision-making process was, oh, oh I want to meet my hero. And um, then 9-11 happened, and uh, Sam never showed up to the play. Um, but what I did get to do was, you know, have lunch with Joseph Chaikin and have him t- talk to me about his process um, John Guare wrote an amazing play that next spring called A Few Stout Individuals that we did the world premiere of. Edward Albee's Occupant had its world premiere with Anne Bancroft in it. And so, um, you know, and I was very much a fly on the wall for all these things. I was in a reading of Arthur Miller's um and, and it was just great to be like very low on the totem pole, but just these wide eyes and, and ears, just, you know, taking in as much as I could.
2: Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW for avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: And that was kind of my strategy the first few years in New York. I just saw as much theater as I could. I got a job working for the League of Resident Theaters, Lort. Um, I was the only employee of Lort. Um. And so I would see a lot of plays uh, through that job, probably two or three shows a week, including a lot of opening nights and um, really figuring out kind of where I was in the industry, what kind of theater I liked. And um, in the meantime, I started to uh, self-produce and really think about directing a good buddy of mine who was in my class at Evansville was a playwright named Matt Smart, um, who's just an amazing uh, mind and, and, and a good friend of mine. He was my roommate in college. And, um, And we produced a play at Here Arts Center um, for their living room festival uh, called Chopin's Preludes that had Bill Heck in it and Kelly Giddish, who's now in on Law & Order SVU. And um, it was uh, just a very fun production. And then the next summer, uh, uh, me and and a few friends created uh, what became Slant Theater Project. And we got our name uh, from the Emily Dickinson poem, Tell All the Truth But Tell It Slant. Uh, which I think just speaks to the idea that uh, I wanted to do a type of theater that, um, that kind of show, that kind of showed the way that, that, kind of didn't try to be, be truth, but almost tried to be, I don't know, just tried to create, be great art that somehow, um, uh, gives us a glimpse of the truth without, without kind of, um, uh, being overt about it. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I didn't want to make didactic theater. Um, I wanted to make theater that put the art first, but yet had this kind of um truth and larger meaning at, at its core, but but you didn't have to get that if you if you if you didn't want to. Um we produced a play called Shoes, that was a four-person play at um at the uh Phil Bosakowski Theater on 45th Street. Um, Kelly Guinness was in that along with Rami Malik, Academy Award winner Rami Malik from Booking and Rhapsody. Sure. And, and that play began, I think, um, really a 15 year journey with Slant, um, where we produced about 24 world premieres, um, working with a lot of great writers, um, Matt Smart, um, Matt Moses, uh, Becca Brunstetter, um, Tracer Rebeck wrote us a one act, Adam Rapp did. Um, it was a great uh, journey um, with that company. And part of what we realized, I think, with that first show where we we made like no money from it, but um, part of what we realized, I think, is that we can't compete with like, what off-Broadway does. You know, we can't, we we don't have the money. Um, you're never gonna make money doing theater anyway. So, like, what can we do well? And so after that, we started doing shows in like comedy clubs. Um, you know, we did a show at um in 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 a, a light ship that was like floating in the in the East River. Um we did uh shows in a in an arts high school, and so finding kind of found spaces that would do a lot of the work for us. Um, and where the audience kind of comes in with low expectations, and then we show them this amazing thing in a strange box. And that was kind of, that really became our jam through most of our, our production history. And just surrounding ourselves with great artists. I mean, in addition to the writers, um, you know, a lot of really fantastic actors and directors came through Slant. Evan Cabnet, who's the artistic director of LCT Three, um, directed a lot of shows for us. Um, and uh, one of one of our kind of guiding principles was that we would always make sure to cast someone who we hadn't worked with before. So, you know, we had our kind of team that, that we liked, but there was always a wild card. And what that did over time was it, it just greatly expanded our circle and and really provided just an amazing, um, you know, a family of, of artists who, who believed in the work and whose work we believed in. And um, that uh, company really, you know, lasted until I moved to Iowa in 2018, Um and I, and I guess I'll say that, that a bit, a large part of that decision making process was, um, you know, New York is hard. New York is a, is a hard place to live and it certainly is a hard place to make money doing theater. And there's also something I guess about, about New York and I love, I love it. You know, Sam Shepard called it the arena. And I think in many ways it, it is that where, um, you know, there is, it's a theater town. It's a new play town. Um, you know, a lot of who, who we do theater for are theater people and, and that's okay. And that's a wonderful thing. The last, one of the last shows that I, I directed was a play called in the room, which was about playwriting workshops. And in some ways the audience for that was actors and writers and people who, um, you know, do these workshops in these strange rehearsal rooms. Um, and, and that's all great, but there is something wonderful about regional theater and and, and resident companies around 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 the US that that are doing theater, I think, for a largely non-initiated crowd. Um, you know, there are people I didn't know this, there are people who live in Iowa City who genuinely love serious-minded theater. And they're not actors and they're not kind of they're not they don't have a screenplay that they're working on or a or or a play. They just love theater. And um, that, that happens in New York too, but, but I guess it's, um, you know, it's such an oversaturated market and it's wonderful to be, to be presenting theater for, for those kind of audiences. And I guess I'll also say that um, I realized that in terms of affecting the livelihood and the careers of artists I believe in um, regional and resident companies can do that in a far different way than an off, off Broadway company can. Um, You know, every play I do, um, compensates it's every play I do in Iowa city compensates its artists and its writers far more than what we could sustain than what I was ever able to sustain in New York city. And in terms of building a patchwork towards a life in this art form, um, the resident and regional theaters, um, have an important place in that ecosystem, um, and so I'm proud to be you know, working to sustain, you know, a livable model um, for the American theater here. Wow. Theater is for everyone, Adam.
1: <laughs> it's for everyone. Um, <clears throat> first of all, OK, I'm totally jealous that you got to work with all of those people. I myself would have total imposter syndrome. I always like start feeling completely inferior. And did did you ever feel that way working with all of those theater
0: giants? I still have it. I have it all the time. I have it with <laughs> I have it with the, with with all of my actors here in Iowa City. Um, you know, I I'm always constantly wondering like, how are they going to find out that I'm a fraud? You know, you know, and and being an artistic director too, there's that additional thing. Like the first play I directed here was Arthur Miller's The Price, and I was just thinking. Yep. They're going to figure it out. They're going to, as soon as opening night happens, they're going to realize they made a mistake and it's awful and they're going to run me out of town. And so I, I still have it all the time. And, and occasionally I even wonder if they have figured out that I'm a fraud, but they're just humoring me. that's like the, that's like the next level of the imposter syndrome is the paranoia. Yeah.
1: They're just, they're just being nice to me. That's all. They're just, they're, yeah. I, I hear you on that, but I, I think it's valid with me, with you. I think there's nothing imposter about you because I think that you, especially now hearing that full on history that you just gave us, you really have what it takes. And I could, I could sort of feel the seeds of, of your style sort of sprouting up as you were talking about them with the one show that I've, I've seen of yours. Um, It. It makes me think that y- you do have a sort of creative vision that you approach a show with. Um, how do you, which I, I don't necessarily know if a lot of directors do that. I mean, they're supposed to, but a lot of them are like, Oh, you block here, say this, say it like this, or here's your motivation. But with you, there is like, you walk in and you just go, okay, this is what I see. How do you go about creating that? Are there, Certain components you like to infuse into the show. I mean, do you have a checklist or where does it come from?
0: I I spend a lot of time with the text. Um, I try to like not I, I try not think about anything visual for a long time until I really understand the text. And maybe that comes from being um, you know, a writer back in my college days and really, really, really loving literature. But um I want to make sure that I, I know what it means to me. You know, it, it clearly meant something to the playwright, but I have to find out like what what are the seeds of things that 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 move me when this. What can I? What are kind of my toe holes? And out of that, you know, comes a lot of my my table work process, which is really just trying to find out like like what can we add personally to this. What what kind of is sparked by by these words or these moments or these scenes? And I guess the other thing I'll say is I really try to go into every process with no preconceived notions. And and I really try to like know nothing. I try to completely like empty my mind of like thoughts and then like and and say yes to when those sparks happen. Um you know for instance that that kitchen thing, like maybe it just needs a kitchen. And just saying and just like not being afraid of like the bad ideas. Like I've got a lot of bad ideas. And often I'll talk to my designers or my or my producers or my or my or my colleagues and I'll be like can I, can I tell you my bad idea for this? And and usually that bad idea is like what, what the good idea comes from. But, but, in but it's been a constant, I think 20 years of training myself to like embrace the bad ideas. And, and I'll, you know, and I'm, and I'm very serious when I say, I have no idea how I'm going to direct a play. Um, Even sometimes when I go into that first read through, um, it's terrifying. I mean, it's an awful thing for me, like, personally to do with, to myself because I don't know where, I don't know how I'm going to get through the next month of my life. But um, I think it's a way to make good art is, is kind of embracing the not knowing. And, um, you know, what I know going into that first table read um, is generally, you know, why I believe in the play, you know, why I think it's important, um, why I think we should do it. And what and what it's trying to say, and I try to kind of get those conversations going with the artists. And and if I'm lucky enough, but that's not always the case, to have already had some some great design conversations. You know, that's what I go into those design conversations with too. And out of that come all these other other threads. I mean, I think that's partly why the idea of doing a musical is so daunting to me. And I don't think I'm not sure if I ever will. Because I think a lot of those decisions have to be made so much earlier in the process. You know, you, you know, simply because there's just too many factors. And so the artist, you know, you have to know like what, what the set's going to do before you even start blocking because the set's like, you know, on all these hydraulics and it's moving all over the place. Whereas with a the theater, there's a certain manageability to, you can make that decision a week into the process that, oh, you know, I think we need to do it in the kitchen. And, and can we move the audience around? And, and I love the freedom to, to change the rules as we go and to kind of build the plane around, um, build the play around the production, or I guess build the production around the play. I'm not sure which one comes first, but, um, the, the mantra of, of Snake Theater Project was, um, we build the plane in flight. Um, we, you know, we thrive on the danger of building the plane in flight. And in some ways, that's still very much my mantra. I mean, it's terrifying because there's always the danger that oh, maybe this time we're actually going to crash the, pl- the plane. But um, but that danger of not knowing I, to me is is where a lot of great art comes from, and and having to trust those impulses and and to have faith in the artist that you've got because you're because we're all we've all got to like get out of this thing together. You know, we've all got to survive. And so that that builds a certain kind of trust and faith and and I, I would say that I have a lot of trust in, in my artists. Um, I think you have to, but um, and, and I hope that I hope that you know out of that comes comes a faith in me and 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 the process as a whole because um, that's what I think leads to those real breathtaking performances um, is, is feeling trusted. Wow.
1: Well, I could definitely feel that from the cast. Um, <clears throat> I think that embrace the bad ideas and we build the plane in flight are rivaling each other for the best quote from this interview so far. I love both of those. Um, I can really relate to embracing the bad ideas because when I'm writing, um, I always have to let myself write crap, like very, very, you just, you just have to do it. And um and be okay with that. Uh, so, I—I I mean, I feel that you—you you have to consider every idea. And you're right. When when you're at a place, I think it was like Meryl Streep said something to the effect that when she is doing, uh, when she's researching a role or she's going doing her script work, she finds the one thing in the script that she struggles with, that she doesn't understand, that she can't. She tells herself, "I can't do that." and then that's what she says is the key to her performance when she figures that out i love that oh isn't that great i thought yeah. oh it's so right i mean because you force yourself to you force yourself to be way more creative than you would have been
0: normally and you have yeah. genius moments Yeah, it must be incredibly taxing at the same time, and 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 I and I know it is for me, but it's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful way to I think make art, and and I guess the other thing I'll say is that um, at a certain level I think I've got I've developed an ability to 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 be um, to forget what I know, which is to say, like when I watch a run of a play, I really try to go in with a blank slate, and and just say, okay, what if I was sitting down for the first time? Am I getting it? Like, do I get the story? Like, do we get, do we even know who Hamlet is? Do we get that he's the son here? You know, like, like how can, like, like, and if that story is not being told, it doesn't matter, you know, what you're doing. So like on a certain level in the process, then it's about like, what are the guideposts for the audience? Like, what, what do we need to tell the story? What's the structure? And, and as I've gotten older, I think that's become a lot more important, an important kind of third act of my process is making sure that the story is getting told. Good. Good. That's, that's, that's really, that's an excellent priority because
1: sometimes I think that the story can get, um, as they say, lost in the sauce of everything that's going on. But, um, like with stupid fucking bird, the story was always front and center and everything else was built around it. Um, so I, I, at least I feel at least that you're successful on that, and I know a lot of people have have expressed those sentiments to me because we couldn't to you because you just you moved after that happened, so we all just had to to cry and grieve and and get over and realize that eventually one day you'll be back.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll tell one more story about stupid fucking bird, and I and I and I and, I, and this is a little bit embarrassing on my part because I've never done this and I was wrong, but let me just say. I, there's this incredibly long monologue that Olivier's character, um, has in the play that goes on for like 10 minutes. And at a certain point about, um, you know, a, a few days before opening, I got scared and I just thought, I don't think we're sustaining it. I think we're going to lose the audience. You know, I think we got to trim it. And this, I feel awful saying this. And, and, and if Aaron Posner is listening to this, I'm sorry. But I, I was just thinking, oh, it probably worked in the first production, but it's not going to work here. We can't do it. Let's just trim it. And I gave some notes to Olivier and he, and he kind of took me outside and wanted to talk to, talk to me about the cuts. And, and he refused. And he said, I, he even said that. He's like, I refuse. I refuse to do this. And I, and I just checked my and I checked my ego for a second. And I said, you're right, Olivier. We should, we have to do it the way it's written. And and you're right. Thank you. I hope I said thank you to him. But if I didn't, at least I, at least I acquiesced. And you know what? He was right. That, that monologue was, was thrilling, you know, in front of an audience. And, and I feel so embarrassed. I didn't trust the play. And that was maybe a moment of doubt where I didn't trust my, my performer. And I'm so glad that he um, stood up to me and, and, um and, and fought for it because he was absolutely right. And, uh, And that's that's, I guess, a moment where, um, you know, I try to I it's important, I think, for for everyone in the room to check their ego and for and for the best idea to win. In that case, I was dead wrong. And I'm so glad that he was right.
1: Wow. I just have to say, I don't see how you should be embarrassed or feel weird or strange about that at all. That's probably one of the best and strongest decisions you made throughout the entire process in my opinion that's that's great and in addition to you know keeping the the monologue which you had said was he was right you probably instilled so much trust and and faith in Olivier in you because of the fact that you were you were hearing him out and i th- i mean i just think that that's that's really cool that you did that. I mean, I've been in the, the rehearsal room uh, as a writer and of a new a new piece, and I often listen to the actors, even if I argue with them. I'll be like, "Well, I don't know why is this. I don't think." And I would say, "All usually all they do is just make the script better because yeah, <laughs> they're up there saying." It. So I think it's really cool that you did that. That's a that's a great story. Love it. <laughs> Tell us about sonnets for an old century. Uh, What inspired you to select the piece? Uh, Talk about your team of artists and their contributions.
0: So, so as maybe a preface to this, Riverside Theater, um, we were in the middle. We were about to launch our 40th anniversary season when the pandemic hit, and I think that you know, like all theaters, we've been trying to figure out what the hell we're going to do Mm -hmm. during all this. And for and for Riverside, I think the decision really became about community. Like, how do we how do we keep our mission going? while supporting our artistic community here, because we don't want to, you know, wake up a year from now, um, and it's been a year now, um, you know, saying we didn't do anything and, and we're still here, but kind of limping along and we hope to go out, come out of stasis at some point. So I guess my, my, my thought was, well, let's do some virtual productions and let's focus on solo work. And, and why solo work? A, because it's like, it was easier for me to think of because, you know, at the very least, maybe someone could just self-record something and they're like their basement or something. And the other thing is that solo plays, and I love solo play. I love great solo work. Um, They really spark the imagination because uh, they don't show. They, 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 they tell and they kind of allow the, they give the audience space to really um, fill in fill in all the whole all the visual holes for themselves, and so that that felt to me a perfect type of work for for this moment because um, the challenge with virtual theater, right, is like it's never going to look the way you want it to. You know, we're never going to be in a bar in Dublin like um, you know doing the weir, and so like how how is it going to how how are we going to create this thing? without making it feel like a movie. And so this fall we did No Child and Byron Seller and Grounded and a new production, um, out of the UK called Midnight Your Time. And, um, and it was great. And every one of those plays was, was vastly different. Grounded was filmed very much like a, like a play. Um, Midnight Your Time, it was about a mother talking to her daughter over Zoom. And so essentially like the Zoom camera was the play. Um, but we uh, we filmed all of these, um, you know. We we created a whole production around them, and we tried to like make sure that that the storytelling that fit, fit, fit the play. Um, and so the spring, you know, I was trying to think of what to do, and we we spent so much time and effort, like making these, these productions happen. But at the end of the day, we're talking about working with four actors. And so that's kind of a little heartbreaking and thinking about, you know, we've got so many wonderful actors in Eastern Iowa. How do we energize that community? How do we, how do we kind of get them all involved? And I was cleaning out my office and I literally found the postcard to Sonnets for an Old Century, a production of Steppenwolf, like in 2011. And Riverside was already planning in April to do a series of events um, centered around Shakespeare's sonnets. Um, we're calling it the Sonnet Project. So we're having a marathon reading of Shakespeare's sonnets outdoors um, on, on Shakespeare's birthday, the 23rd. Um, we had a sonnet writing workshop yesterday. So, so we have kind of already had these series of events in place. And all of a sudden I was like, well, this sounds like a great way to kind of marry our artistic programming with this kind of other outreach programming that we're doing. And then reading the play, it's a series of monologues, um, all you know, kind of like Spoon River Anthology, that are all taking place in the afterlife. And so I think the the kind of premise of the play is how do you tell your life story in the space of a sonnet? And so each of these characters, um, and it's a very loose interpretation of what a sonnet is, but each of these characters kind of tells a, a moment of their life or or a lesson learned, um, and oftentimes it's just a really fascinating story that somehow defined their being. And um, some pieces are as as short as 90 seconds. Other pieces are about 10 minutes long. Um, The the play itself has about 35 of these and Jose Rivera um, gives the instructions that a company can choose to do as many or as few as they want in any order that they want. And, um, and so we've chosen about, we've chosen 24 of them. Um, And, uh, and it's just been a fascinating process. I mean it's kind of was like directing twenty four one acts because um each play has its own kind of movement to it, its own volta or turn, which is what happens in a sonnet too and um And each play kind of has its own rules and so and then and then the challenge is like how do you space these all together? How do you create this like um interesting celestial quilt work, which is what the play wants to be? Um, you know, without it just being like, oh, here's another piece, here's another piece, here's another piece. Like, how do you build that? And so I've got these amazing designers here. Um, uh, a sound designer, um, Gabriel Clausen, who's at G, who is actually out of, um, North Carolina. And then a guy named Rob Merritt, um, who is a wonderful actor, but also does film and editing here. And then my production designer, um, um, S. Benjamin Farrar. And they basically had this idea to create A a entire green screen world. And that sounds, and my first reaction was, uh, you know, we're going to, we don't have the money to make like the Avengers here. Um, and I was thinking, can't we just like build a set and just have people perform monologues and just take turns filming them? But, um, you know, they really wanted to, to experiment with this idea of creating a, a scale model, essentially, um, of a world and then placing the actors within the scale model. So in some ways it's very digital and virtual, but in other ways it's very analog, right? Because the, the set actually exists. There is there is a set that fits on a table that is this like island that all these characters inhabiting. And then by filming them in, 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 in like a total green screen um, area, including the floor, we're essentially placing their, their bodies onto the set in different places. And so... It also kind of solved a riddle of how to have an ensemble um, during this moment, because all 23 actors are on stage at a certain moment in the play. And so there's, uh, you know, it provided technical challenges, but in some ways it solved a lot of the riddles of, of producing theater in this moment, because we've got a play with an ensemble um, who have, who were never in the same room together.
1: Wow. Oh. And, and- how did you go about putting the, the piece together to uh, create that sort of connective tissue of, of, of theme um, and, and, and narrative and arc? Uh, is it something that's just usually there, no matter what order you put the the piece, uh, the monologues in, or how, how did that work?
0: You know, I, going into it, I knew that was going to be a challenge. And, and maybe that's why I decided to, um, to direct it, to direct it myself only because I felt like I knew how to do this. And also I just felt like this is going to be a lot of hours of work. And I don't know that we've got the money to pay a director to, to do this, but that isn't, that isn't me because I'm on salary. So, but that said, you know, I, I think I went into it knowing, okay, what's the connective tissue? What's the connective tissue? Like, how do we, how, how do we give the audience the information to know, okay, we're going to go from this one to go to this to this piece and these pieces aren't connected, but they are. And so kind of how do you, how do you teach the audience how to watch it? And I don't know, I don't quite know how to explain that other than, you know, we basically, you know, created these transitions where a camera is moving and a camera is literally like filming the model and moving from person to person. And, and we have these little like cardboard cutouts of the, of the people that, that in the, in the film look Reasonably real, but like, you know, we're literally like kind of filming this like still world and, um, and the sound designer G was very good about kind of creating that, that like that oral tapestry, um, to, to connect it all, but it's a challenge. I mean, what I, um, and, and part of it was finding the right, uh, order of pieces and being open to that. And like, what is the emotional journey? What's the emotional high point? some of these pieces are very weird. Like it goes into like sci-fi land sometimes. So like what, what's the piece that's going to teach the audience? Okay. Weird stuff can happen. So then later when like a second, like, uh, when an identical like twin of one of the actors walks out and they start interacting with each other, it's like, okay, I was ready for that. Um, we, you know, this is a world in which weird, weird things occur. And so, um, so you know, I kind of thought of the audience's mind as like a piece of dough like that you're stretching into a pizza, and like you sometimes have to let it rest and then you sometimes have to cover it and like let it relax, and then you kind of can stretch it some more and then toss it in the air and like you know and, and pound it with your knuckles you know and so um being aware of like kind of how do you stretch the audience without without ripping them um uh and it was it was a constantly a balance and and I think it's a it's a thrilling show to watch i mean. I will say um, I'm going to make a bold statement here that I think it's one of the most ambitious theatrical productions in the country right now. Um, it's. Um, I don't know of any company that's doing something um, that looks like what this play is. Um, so I hope that hope that folks will check it out.
1: I'm sure they will. I mean, it looks it looks really cool from the the advertising and the marketing that you're doing with it. Um, I can you know relate to having to put together a narrative with a lot of like like eighty different pieces of dialogue or monologues. And when David and I wrote our play at the flash, which is five decades in a game, but now six because it's been so long since we performed it. Um, we, we didn't want it to be monologue beginning, middle, end, beginning, middle, end, you know, we wanted it to. So I, I I literally like went through it and marked all the various themes of each Okay, This is family. Um, this is uh, a struggle. This is a uh, violence, what, whatever. And then went through <laughs> Tell the story all the time and cut the script up and then put it on the ground and puzzled it all back together mm-hmm. and put it together with tape. I mean, I love that. Some, sometimes you have to go and you have to do very basic things like that to, to help yourself get to where you need to be. You know, you have to like do stuff you did in kindergarten. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I have I have a taping experience very similar to that where where, where I took a script once and just chopped it up and taped it and, and and it was it was thrilling and that's exactly what it needs sometimes is that, mm-hmm. that it's puzzling yeah <laughs> very good
1: <laughs> okay let's let's talk about you personally take yourself back to that first day of the early stages of COVID nineteen. When the theater, when theater started shutting down, you know what day I'm talking about. And, and everybody on this series answers this question. How personally were you feeling inside? What was that first day or two like? And did you, when did you start to rebound from that?
0: I would say my experience was maybe slightly different than others because at the time I was, we had a show performing called stages that, that my, one of my best friends was in um, David Lee Nelson. And it was a play about his um, uh, living with stage four colon cancer. And um, in the midst of that production, you know, as we're, you know, I remember sitting in Iowa city and the dominoes are falling. It's like Broadway just closed. Like this is just closing. And we kind of thought we could get through the weekend. And, um, and, on, you know, one of the things that kind of forced our hands was that he had a health scare. And and then it was like, I've got to get him back to South Carolina where he lives. Like, I've got to get him home because whatever hospital he goes to, like, you know, this is an important decision and we've got to get him close to close to his wife and his family. And so um, when we made that decision to shut down um, the next hour, I was in a car driving through the night. Um, with my friend and like, you know, all, you know, not stopping, you know, how, you know, got to South Carolina at like 7 a.m. the next day. And so in many ways, my experience with COVID was also um, my experience starting to accept to grapple with my friend's mortality. Um, mm-hmm. and and he, he ended up, he, he passed away that September. So I'm last sorry. September. And it was, uh, and so my, my COVID experience is very much wrapped up with that and, 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 and what his kind of, you know, last, last act of that journey is. Um, and, uh, you know, and then cut to getting back to Iowa city and then realizing, you know, what are we going to do? Like, and, we, and like everyone else, I think we thought, okay, we, we'll push back Shakespeare a month and do, you know, pre Shakespeare and, July and maybe the production of Doll's House part two, we were supposed to start rehearsing with this week. We'll, we'll push it to June, you know? And and then all of a sudden it's like, no, this thing's not going away. This thing's not going away. And, um, on top of that, we lost our, our lease on our theater, um, or like, put it another way. Um, we made the decision to, uh, to, um, end our lease when it, when it, when it, it's term expired. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that was just, you know, we've got to figure out how to survive this. Um, you know, we can keep producing theater. We can keep, um, you know, employing, uh, some of our staff in some capacity, or we can be paying a rent on a building that we're not using. And, you know, going back to that idea of like, what, what do we need to put first? Mission and community and building is not on that list and we can make art without a building. And so that's what we've been doing for the last year. Um, Riverside, I'm, I'm happy to say is. Um, about to launch a capital campaign, and we have a new space that um, is now under construction that's going to be opening in the heart of downtown Iowa City in February of 2022. So um, a lot has changed in that, and, and maybe that was a decision, I think, when we left that space. It was a decision to, it was a leap of faith. It was faith that we, um, that that this, um, that a new space would materialize, that that we, um, you know, it's kind of like, it, it reminds me of when, um, the, the Kingsmen, um, you know, had to tear apart the old Burbage Theater and, and sail the timbers over the Thames, uh, to build the globe. But they didn't know, um, you know, where the globe was going to be. All they knew is they had to like take their theater with them and, and see, and see where the next um, place would be. So, um, it was, it was a leap of faith in, in, in a, in a, in a time where there was a lot of, um, Faith that was needed to get through this, uh, and you know, we've been producing almost nonstop since September. Um, you know, maybe you know, to our benefit, but maybe in a weird way to a fault, because I think that um, what we've given up in that time is, uh, you know, there is there's so many questions that are happening in theater right now, and we've been producing so intensely um, these virtual productions, you know, and and now I think. As we look to this new space, as we look to the future of Riverside, um, we're having to play a little bit of catch-up and um, and looking at our own systems, you know, making sure that that Riverside's on the right side of where um, where theater is going, where theater needs to be going. The kind of long overdue conversations that are being had, and um, and those those conversations are ongoing here. Um, Iowa City is a great community to be. Having those conversations, we've got an amazing mayor, an amazing, amazing city, an amazing, um, community who, who believes, I would say, um, on mass that, that Black lives matter and believe in this kind of social justice need, um, that's happening. So it's, it's an exciting, um, uh, I, I'm feel very lucky to be in our community and how supportive they are to the dialogue that, that's needing to happen right now.
1: That's great. And I'm sorry about your friend.
0: Thank you. That's
1: not always difficult to deal with and not made easier by, you know, COVID-19 and its effect on the world. That's, yeah. um, that takes a, a very, very strong person of tremendous character to be able to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. So, you know, total props to you. Um, how have you surprised yourself through all of this
0: what's I, I think what surprised me I mean initially when I thought about you know what virtual theater was I was thinking oh we'll just you know hire a filmmaker and you know we'll just film something and we'll, we'll you know, put it up there just just say we did it and I think I've sur- I think what surprised me is how how much it is like theater how you have to have a process, how you have to sit down with the designers, how how we had to kind of do all the same things that we do that make theater great, go into making these virtual productions. Um, That element of trust and collaboration are so key. Um, You know, a year ago, looking at what sonnets for an old century is, I don't think I ever could have imagined Riverside would have been capable of doing a a production that, that looks and feels like that, that involves so many performers. Um, and so it's, I don't know. I mean, I guess I've, you know, I slash Riverside have maybe surprised ourselves by, um, by doing what we said we're going to do by, by focusing on our mission. And now, you know, as this pandemic, hopefully knock on wood is winding down, I think we've got a lot of things to be proud of. And, um, and so, you know, I guess, I guess that's how, um, we've surprised ourselves by not, you know, um, giving giving way to fear um by not giving into that and and you know there's been a lot of tears here there's been a lot of moments of uncertainty but um to the staff's great credit and to the artists great credit here um and and for that matter to the board's credit and to our community's credit there's been this desire to keep keep going and to keep um you know believing in in the art that we do and I've been I've been very proud of Riverside's um output this last year Wow. That's great.
1: I tell people theater is not going anywhere. It's not. It's diminished quite a bit right now, but it will be right back to where it was. We've had theater back into centuries and centuries and centuries ago. People need to be entertained. They need to perform. They need to express. And um, we may be down a little bit right now, but we're figuring it out. And we'll come back and we'll take what we figured out and maybe use a little bit of that to shape our future theater. I know a lot of people are like, I would have never thought to to uh, use camera techniques, but I can definitely use them in future productions. I mean, obviously, you don't want your theater to to just always do camera stuff because then it's a production house. But they're finding that the things that they've learned... Are so useful, and and it took sort of taking off the blinders a little bit and seeing that.
0: Absolutely, and and one of the things I, I that we're committed to is every year from now on, I want to do a virtual production, um, and part of that is just to kind of keep keep those lessons going, keep finding new ways to stretch ourselves, um, and finding new ways to tell stories, um, and giving our artists more tools uh, to have for. For whatever the next challenge is so um i want to i want to keep doing it i don't want it to be the, the the our main our main um activity i do miss i miss you know there's something about filming things it feels like you're like you're filming first tech essentially um you know and, and what you miss is like ah oh, i wish we would have done this but now you can't go back because that involves like way too many things um, but a lot of the same rules apply some of the some of the best moments of of this year have been, you know, purely theatrical moments, you know, moments where it's like, Oh no, like, let's just like point a light in this direction and like, see what, see what effect it does on the camera and, or, or no, just take a, take a longer beat there and just sit, sit and like sit staring at the camera and see what that does. And it, you know, it's these kind of low tech, um, you know, little, little beauties that theater is so good at that, that, um, you manage um, in some ways to still translate in this new form. Hmm. Wow! Uh, I'm
1: so glad that I had a chance to talk with you. I really am because um, it not only does this series pull people together, and we feel like the that the world is a little bit smaller for us, and it's easier to grasp because so many things that you're saying, I've heard you know on the last 15 20 shows and it it just shows me that um, we're all still being creative and we're all pushing and our leaders like you you're you're a leader you are um, are are figuring it out and figuring it out with the help of their teams and I think that's really cool I think um, I think you're a, a, a brilliant director and I think you're um, a an incredible theater administrator as well uh, and which, which takes its own sort of amount of creativity as well, but in a different direction. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm humbled that we got to have this conversation, but before we go, can you please Give our audience your social media information so they can follow and keep up with Riverside Theater and experience Sonnets for an Old Century as well as all future happenings at the theater.
0: Absolutely, and 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 I know your listeners can't see that. I'm blushing and cavelling um, as you're saying all these things. And, and he is so much. It, you're it, mean, it means it means so much, and uh, and it's so great to see you again. Um, Riverside Theater is on all the things. We're on, we're on Facebook. We're on Insta. We're on Twitter. Um, We're not the Riverside Theater in Ireland, nor Mm -hmm. the one in Australia, nor the one in Florida. We're Riverside (laughs) Theater, Iowa City, Um, and also we're at riversidetheater.org. That's theater with an R E, and um, you can catch Sonnets for an Old Century wherever you are, Um, and it runs through the end of this month through the through the twenty fifth, and and also a lot of other happenings going on. So so thank you so much. I love one of the things I love about this moment is it does provide opportunities to see what a lot of other theaters are doing. Uh, And I do hope that um, your listeners will do that. But I also need to do it myself and, and check out a lot of the great work coming out of New York and other places. So thank you so much.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Um, Adam, you're amazing. Your distinct voice as an esteemed theater director administrator has truly broadened the perspective of the Act Two Places series. And I wish you many, many, many broken legs in your career as we navigate our way toward the best future for theater. Well, folks, the 11 o'clock number has been sung and the bows have been taken. So it's time to lower the curtain. Once again, a big thanks to director Adam Knight, such an awesome guest do check out Sonnets for an Old Century. Adam is a totally brilliant, incredibly creative director. You can find more episodes of your program as your ticket on the Broadway Podcast Network, who has honored me with a place on their incredible theater podcast platform. Broadway Podcast Network is all about creating an engaging, immersive, user-friendly experience where theater stories of all kinds can be easily found, shared, and enjoyed. Please visit them on my landing page at BPN. FM slash That's B P N dot FM slash y-p-i-y-t. That's Broadway Podcast Network also has an app which you can and should download. Your program is your ticket is also on Facebook at Facebook.com your program is your ticket. I'm on Twitter at, at program ticket, Instagram at your program is your ticket, YouTube at your program is your ticket. I'm also on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM Podcast Addict Podbean, Pocket Casts, Deezer, TuneIn, Listen Notes, and the UK based theatre platform Thespi. FYI, I appreciate all good ratings, reviews, and subscriptions. Folks, take a little time to visit theatre websites and see what they have to offer as we transition through and out of this pandemic. Watch their content, give them all great ratings and reviews, and most importantly, donate, donate, donate. It's the fastest way you can help them. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. And remember, theater is for everyone.